Some of you, no doubt, uh, are wondering what I did for the last month. Well, here it is, in draft form, nearly done. Just a, a few pages on ritual theory, religious naturalism, and positing ritual design as a means of effective leadership. I got to read fun books with titles like Interaction Ritual Chains, The Problem of Ritual Efficacy, a real page-turner page right there, uh, Ritual and Its Consequences, an essay on the limits of ritual sincerity, and so on. If you're clamoring to borrow one of those books from me, just let me know. It's what I love most about religion and, well, humanity in general. We are a ritualizing species, from lighting a chalice on Sunday mornings to singing Take Me Out to the Ball Game at a baseball game, from invoking gods or goddesses to invoking nothing other than this life. From this ritual, the sermon, the Sunday service, to the ritual we've been partaking of for over a month now, the ritual that will finally begin being tabulated on Tuesday, the election, Ritual is everywhere. It isn't everything, though. It isn't the cup of tea or coffee you make every morning. That's called a routine. So is brushing your teeth, doing your crossword puzzle. What I'm talking about here is embodied, condensed, and prescribed enactment. Making cranberry sauce for Thanksgiving is usually not a ritual, but Thanksgiving itself can be. Reading election news is not a ritual, but one could argue filling out a ballot, mailing it in, or submitting it, and the great tabulation that occurs afterwards is. It's a modern-day communion for democracy, voting. And so this pile of paper will go through some reviews, uh, format reviews, second, third, fourth drafts. Then it'll be defended, scanned, uploaded to university archives. If I want, I can order a hardbound copy to sit on my shelf. The act of writing this wasn't really a ritual, but the process that prompted the writing is. One thing that I did learn in writing this is that there are so many topics I want to write about as they relate to ritual. Rules governance and non-theistic ritual, sign me up. This is good stuff. But anyway, here we are. Today is All Souls Day. Today is the first Sunday of November. Today is the last Sunday before the election. Here we go. I've been looking over some past sermons lately. Well, one in particular. I don't often reread what I've written and preached, though for laughs, sometimes I'll read my very first sermons when I was just starting seminary, and boy, I thought I knew something then, didn't I? But no, the sermon I've been revisiting is the one I preached on November 6th, 2016. Two days before the 2016 election, two days before, uh, mostly progressives nationwide experienced a stunning upset. Two days before, many of us learned some hard truths about the country we inhabit. I look at that sermon and I note the optimism. I was hopeful for our country when I preached that four years ago. I was almost certain we would have a woman president two days after I preached it. And it should come as no surprise to you that I am a progressive. And uh, I was so certain in 2016 that my candidate would win the day. And there were several reasons for this. First, I had made peace with Republican presidents, governors, and whatnot in the past. Many did their jobs imperfectly as any human being would. Many were taken up in their own scandals, their own abuses of power. Some enacted what I felt were absolutely deplorable policies. <laughs> if they were an Illinois governor, well, they often got thrown in jail. It's an Illinois tradition, no matter what your party is. 
But never once, as George W. Bush started two undeclared wars, uh, never once with the candidacies of John McCain or Mitt Romney, did I fear for the integrity of our democracy or our republic. And to be fair, uh, looking back on uh, Bill Clinton's impeachment and uh, looking at that as it unfolded in exquisite detail on TV, or uh, when Obama enacted harmful immigration policies, I still didn't fear. But here's an admission. In 2016, I wasn't fearful still. And that's on me. I thought it was absolutely impossible for a nationalist populist candidate to be successful. I thought America was a different place than what was revealed the day after the election. Now, I'm not going to sit here and litigate the past. You can do that if you want. Good luck. But is that a good use of our time? I don't think so. The system worked in favor of a party and politician that I find it incredibly difficult to reconcile with my beliefs. But there's something I remember far more after that election. It wasn't the super deluxe, massive boxes of tissues that our director of religious exploration uh, brought to the office or just how quiet it felt the next day. It wasn't the anger people started throwing around at one another for no particular reason. People were lashing out all over the place. It wasn't the bewildered looks on news anchors' faces, many conservative themselves. No, what I remember most are the conversations I had with my friends and colleagues of color in the days, weeks, and months to follow. Welcome to America was the common theme of those conversations. It's always been there. And so I look at that sermon from 2016, and I laugh at the optimist who wrote those words. I look at the last four years, and I wonder if we can say we learned something. Social media is still a reactionary pit of toxicity and clickbait. We demonize the other. We demonize our allies for passing, uh, not passing impossible purity tests. And I honestly want to know, has your circle widened to include people you sharply disagree with? And I say that recognizing that for many, if we're realistic, that is impossible. Because our politics have come to a place where dialogue with the other side can often mean withstanding assaults against who you are as a person and your worthiness to exist, to have rights, and to be treated as human. And the urge there, the the urge in seeing that unfold or having that unfold against you, is to exact that treatment in retaliation. What is the golden rule in 2020? I imagine it's something gathering dust on a bookshelf somewhere. I really wondered how I could bring some optimism to you today. People often look to their clergy for some comforting words, but then again, I'm a Unitarian Universalist minister, and certainty is not exactly a tenet of the faith. But I think what I can give you today is my own sense of not knowing. The deep well of uncertainty and the peace I have found there it's not a peace that leads to complacency. No, I, I'm, I'm more committed to the causes of justice that we hold dear than ever. And it's not a peace that blankets over the turmoil in our world and pretends it doesn't exist. If anything, I feel the burden of just what's at stake deeply. This isn't the peace I expected to find, and there isn't a shred of optimism in there. But it is a peace that leads to hope. Unsettling, unknowing, wild hope. It's climbing a summit to view the horizon and realizing that you have a long journey down. And we don't quite think of peace that way. It's often this serene state that's just out of reach. 
But then I remember Zen, a path that I practice, was born amidst turmoil, war, unrest, and oppression. And in that practice is that peace, difficult, intentional, wiping sweat from the brow, that kind of peace. And so no, I I won't bring you optimism today. Because today I'm really thinking of Cornell West, a a man whose words have been on my mind for months now. Specifically this, I cannot be an optimist, he wrote, but I am a prisoner to hope. I feel like that has been a common theme these past four years. Gone is rosy optimism, but still many are prisoners to hope. Held behind her sturdy walls, no intruders allowed, more of a fortress than a prison. Cold concrete walls, the hearth burns brightly in a common room, carefully maintained lest the flame die out. Cornell West goes further in his distinction between the two. Optimism, he says, is an opinion born out of sufficient evidence. He writes, I've been black in America for 39 years, no ground for optimism here. But he is hopeful, because hope, he says, cuts against the grain. It looks at the evidence weighed against it, against him, against us, and says, no, not today. I will stay in this fight, even if it is against all odds. I like that distinction. For I am no longer an optimist. But I'm not necessarily a pessimist either. I I do hold on to hope, no matter what. Hope grounded in uh, the conflict of praising this mutilated world for there is beauty still to be found. Hope born out of some inconquerable center. Hope born out of our Unitarian Universalist tradition. You see, when I look at our our tradition, the Unitarians taught that we are saved by character, the cultivation of our own and in enabling others to cultivate theirs and giving everyone the means to do so. The Universalists, of course, taught that there was always redemption, always. It was never out of reach. And the modern expression of these two traditions are pretty similar. Throw in right relationship and collective liberation, and here it is, the foundation of Unitarian Universalist hope. But I also look to our history. For if there's anything in Unitarian Universalism I can find plenty of, it's stories of ordinary people living out extraordinary hope. I think of Matthew Torotskoy, Uh, the the superintendent of Unitarians in Transylvania in the 16th century, who fled into an abandoned mine during Catholic oppression. And there, instead of despairing, he wrote hymns, collecting the first ever Unitarian hymnal. His people were not optimistic. He was not optimistic. They knew oppression would come for them again, but they hoped against all odds, composing songs of gladness to sing when love won the day once more. I think of Toribio Quemada, who founded the Universalist Church in the Philippines and was executed for his social justice work, a work that he continued despite threats to his life time and time again. I think of James Reeb and Viola Liuzzo answering the call of Dr. King, risking their lives for the cause of justice, holding on to hope even though they lost their lives for it. I think of all of those in our history, martyred or not who dared to say this path would withstand whatever the world could throw at it. And it has. It always does. It's always a small fire burning in the night. I try to bring these stories, past and present, with me into this world, into this moment right here. 
Matthew Toritskoy, Terribio Kimada, Reeb Liuzzo, right here, brushing shoulders, awaiting the next storm. I try to remember that hope is a difficult path, but less fraught with the anguish of optimism. I try, and that's really all we can do. So here we are, figuring out what hope means today, two days before the election. As always, I cannot and will not tell you who to vote for. And it feels like a conversation I don't have to have in Unitarian Universalist circles. But you would be surprised. I get asked often if conservatives can feel comfortable in our faith. And it's a curious question to me. Uh, first, it assumes progressives are always comfortable. Well, they shouldn't be. None of us should. The oft-quoted Reinhold Niebuhr should echo in our hearts. The role of the church, he writes, is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. That question is still interesting, though. What exactly does someone mean by conservative these days? And it's not my job to answer that, though I, I have my own ideas. I believe wholeheartedly Unitarian Universalism is there to comfort and afflict progressives and conservatives alike. What remains is not some weird idea that church is about comfort alone. I, I think that's where religion has gone wrong. It's not about jealously guarding our comfort, uh, clinging for dear life to solid pillars of belief. Unitarian Universalism has no such thing. Instead, you find handfuls of sand leaking through the fingers and a far-off horizon and always a great journey before us. And so it's about our values. Our principles are not purity statements, nor are they a creed. And I think of C.S. Lewis, who once talked of, uh, speaking of Christianity, said, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And so we could turn that around for our purposes. I believe in the values of our Unitarian Universalist tradition, not because I can hold on to them for dear life, but because by them I am pushed boldly to live. Now, I do need to editorialize for a moment on conservatism. It is up to everyone in our faith to reconcile their way of life with our principles. That is the work of the church, the work of you, the work of me, and we do so imperfectly. But there is a point where there is little reconciling to be had. If your idea of conservatism is being permissive to neo-Nazi groups or KKK groups in our country, of uh, believing in dangerous conspiracy theories such as QAnon, of denying the climate crisis caused by humans, or of subverting democracy. How on earth could such a person feel comfortable anywhere in the world with those beliefs? We often forget, looking at our history, that countless Unitarians died in concentration camps alongside millions of our Jewish siblings. And for a modern group to look at that period of time and what happened, and to think that that was a good thing, and to feel empowered by that, that right there is evil. And we're not talking about the difference between a Barry Goldwater conservative and a John McCain conservative. We're talking about dangerous, life-denying fringe groups. And those groups are right here in the United States today. And they've been empowered and they've been given a voice. We don't know what is going to happen on Tuesday, but we can be prepared. And so first, you need to find your source of hope. What is that enduring center that cuts against the grain? What lets you, as we heard in our poem, praise the mutilated world, finding joy still amidst life, even when the fight for justice continues? And really, this election is all about practical advice, too. 
If you're doom scrolling on social media, you just need to stop. You brought that misery on yourself. And how is that serving you well? Will waging a comment war on Facebook win the election? Surprise, it won't. Will it sustain you and build up your resolve? Maybe for two seconds. Will it erase bigotry and hatred from our world? Gasoline on a fire. But there's other practical advice as well. We need to realize that we may not have election results on Tuesday evening. The map might look quite different than the final outcome once the votes are counted. And we pray they are counted. And if you haven't voted yet, okay, first, we need to talk. But still, you have time. If friends need a ride to vote, take them. Wear a mask. Do what you need to do, but take them. Uh, and other practical things that you can look at is go to protecttheresults.com and host an event here in Lexington. Or go to uuthevote.org and uh, join in one of the phone banks that are happening on Monday morning. There is still time to have a part in this process. You can still volunteer for your chosen candidate's campaign. You can still uh, look, and become, look at becoming an election defender, a poll watcher, to ensure that people are not intimidated at the polls. There is so much that you still can do right now to have a voice in this election. And it's important that we do something. If you haven't already, no matter what the results are for your own integrity, for my integrity, for everyone's integrity, we need to be able to say that we did something, that we did not sit idly by at this point in our history, that we took our hope and put it into action. Because idle pessimism, idle apathy, helped usher in these last four years. And I pray we rediscover hope. Because here's the truth. If we are looking at a second term for President Trump or a first term for Joe Biden, there will still be a damaged, hurting, spiraling nation before all of us. That is where we get to live. It is not going to go away if our favorite candidate wins, whoever that is. That is not how it works. It is one thing to look at the horizon before us, and it's another to get back on the ground and trudge through the swamp on our way. And so I think back to those conversations with my colleagues. What this country is facing has been there for a long time. It's just that right now, it's been given a voice and a platform. And so the work remains. When I look to our Unitarian Universalist history, I see the lives we remember as embodying that ethic. Though they had their moments of victory, they knew the fight wasn't over. Though they were disappointed a thousand times, they knew hope would carry them into the next day. And if ever there was a tagline for this faith, it's forget optimism, but hope against all odds. And so I, I said it in 2016, and I'll say it again today. I believe in our republic. I believe in democracy. And it's getting harder, too, if I'm, gonna, if I'm being honest with you. I want the freedom that optimism can afford me. But hope, <laughs> hope etched in stone provides no comfort but it does provide an enduring spirit. I am hopeful. May you find your source of hope. And for the love of all that is holy, vote. Blessed be. Amen.